lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special evergreen edition of the Steve Day Show, that would be me alongside Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre. We will have a couple of special guests with us later today. We'll tell you about them here in just a moment. Evergreen, though, does not mean unoriginal. This is all new content we have never brought you before. And, of course, let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. You can email the show, steve at stevedace.com that's d-e-a-c-e why do i think after today's show i'll get some of the absolute greatest collection of nutter emails i've received in my entire career i think that that is coming you know what the first one should be how evergreen can this one be considering what we're just about to talk about indeed um will color-coded rapture chart guy confront me in an airport like what happened once in Charlotte, North Carolina. Will that occur again? That's a little uh, it's a little tease, a spoil, mild spoiler to what we will be discussing here in a moment. Let us know what you think about what we think. Email us, steve at stevedace.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Look for me as well on MeWe, Parlor, Gab, and Getter. And then look for clips of the show that uh, are minus censorship and free to watch over at rumble.com slash Show. So I mentioned we have a couple of guests today. In in the next hour, we are going to have a brutally honest, because there's no other conversation you can have with this gentleman. We will have a brutally honest conversation with my brother from another mother, uh, Jason Whitlock, our colleague here at Blaze Media, about the state of race in America, where it stands now compared to where it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And where is it moving forward? So that will be... A beyond blunt conversation you don't want to miss. But if you've got a holiday, Christmas, New Year's Eve party coming up here during this, the most wonderful time of the year, and you're looking for a little bit extra of a next level of wine than what you've typically had access to to serve, how about from the third highest vineyards in the world, deep in the Andes Mountains, Uh, These are some of the best Malbec grapes in the world. Vineyards that are overseen by families that have been doing this for a couple of centuries. And you can get them right now from our friends at Bonner Private Wine. 50% off right now for Christmas delivery. The deadline is December the 15th, so don't hesitate. All right? Christmas delivery deadline, December the 15th. Extreme altitude wines that are delicious. All three of us have tried them. Get them right now at bonnerprivatewines.com slash Steve. Again, you want to go to bonnerprivatewines.com slash Steve. We begin with a day that I thought would never come. That frankly, I swore would never arrive. We begin with the end. (laughs) Yes, yes, we do. And... Ironically enough, it was actually my idea. The name of the book, you've maybe heard me talking about it on the show previously. And then the end will come, the completion of the Great Commission, and nine other clues that Jesus is coming soon. The author of the book, his name is Douglas Cobb, and he joins us for a day that will be long remembered. I I swore we would never... Go down this road, long form, because it just makes people nuts. And yet, 
because the world has gone nuts, I thought we should have this conversation now. So Douglas, it is a pleasure to have you with us, brother. How are you? It's great to be with you, Steve. Thank you so much. And yeah, welcome to the, you know, it's a little crazy over here, but welcome to the party, you know? Indeed. First of all, before we get into your book and we talk about eschatology or the study of the end, the study of end times, according to biblical prophecy, who's Douglas Cobb and, and why write this book? I'm a businessman, an entrepreneur in Louisville, Kentucky. My career has been spent in startups and early stage ventures, sometimes as a CEO, sometimes as an investor, a board member. Uh, that has been a good career and put me in a position a few years ago to begin to pursue ministry more as my full-time endeavor. First working as a volunteer with a ministry called Finishing the Task. And the task is part of what we're going to talk about here today, the Great Commission. And then in the last few years, as the managing partner, volunteer managing partner of the Finishing Fund, and we can talk more about that as well. So a business guy kind of had a halftime change of focus and now mostly working on ministry stuff. Why write a book about this topic? And what did you think you could add to the conversation that was, that was missing previously? I can tell you, I, I really never thought I would write a book about this topic. Through my work uh, with Finishing the Task and the Finishing Fund, I have become aware that the global church is racing toward the finish line of the Great Commission. Jesus told us, go and make disciples of every nation. That's the Great Commission. That word nations is people groups. The Greek word is ethnos. We're now down to just a few hundred people groups out of about 12,000 in the world that no one has ever been to with the gospel. We are racing toward the day when there will be followers of Jesus in every biblical nation. And that's amazing enough, you know, after 12,000 years that our generation might be the one to see that work completed. But there's also a promise that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that the conclusion of that task will open the door to his return. And when I discovered that, that became first, that was powerfully motivating to me. I'm 64. I would love to be part of the generation that sees that return. What an unbelievable privilege that would be. And it also set me on a um, journey, kind of Bible nerding through to find if there were other clues in the scriptures that might similarly signal that we're living in the season of Jesus' return. Those would be the other nine clues in the, the book. And, you know, even after I'd kind of come up with all of that stuff, I thought it was just for my own benefit. But one day in the summer, last summer, um, I just felt God calling me to write it down. And so I did. And that's how it came to be a book. So like a lot of Americans last year, you had too much free time is basically what yeah, you're telling us. Plenty of strange things going on. Now, what did you think of the Barna poll last year that showed a majority of American Christians didn't know what the Great Commission was? And one, yeah. of, one of the criticisms I have of the viewpoint that we're going to look at, is it fair that we would call you a premillennial eschatology guy? Is that fair? Yes, I'm okay. a premillennial guy. And yes. we'll, def we'll define what that means here in a couple minutes. Sure, but, sure. but one of the criticisms that I have had of this view is this idea of seeing things primarily through a, um, uh, a homogenous viewpoint of how things stand in America or in the West without mm -hmm. realizing what is the state of the church elsewhere across the world. Yes. Because if, because 
we could very well be dying in the West. We have in the past. We had a dark ages once before. We might have another one again. But what I hear you saying is, um, actually, when you get outside of our own little uh, myopic prism of Western civilization, we're really doing a bang-up job of taking the Word of God and the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So while things look rather bleak spiritually in the West, from what I hear you saying is actually outside of the West— Things are going pretty legit. I, I think that's a great way to summarize it. You know, the, the church in the West seems to be in decline. There's plenty to be discouraged about. You know, we can look at the specifics on that as we talk. But what most people are unaware of, you mentioned the Barna, uh, uh, you know, survey, and it showed that maybe one in six people in the pews of churches really can even tell you what the Great Commission is. Mm-hmm. Outside of the U.S., the gospel is spreading like it never has before. In the Muslim world, in the Buddhist world, in the Hindu world, we are seeing millions of people come to faith in Christ. Really amazing things are happening. And sadly, most people in the West are completely or mostly unaware that those things are even going on. Let's go back now. I use the term premillennial. Throughout the the history of Christianity, there have been three predominant views or eschatologies leading to um, what will lead to the return of Christ. Those would be premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Now, within each of these millennialisms, there are different facets and beliefs, and and it's not, you know, a, a seamless garment, so to speak, for example, within the premillennial, you'll have people that are what are called pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. So there are individual views within these three views. We're going to talk about the amillennial and postmillennial viewpoints towards the end of this conversation. So mm-hmm. let, let's start, though, with how you would define the view you hold, which is the premillennial view. I believe that um, the first event in the series of events that will signal, that represent the return of Jesus, that the first event will be something called the rapture, where the church will be gathered to join Jesus, that there will, that rapture will be followed by a seven-year period of great judgment called the great tribulation on the earth, uh, and that uh, at the end of that seven years, Jesus will return with the church to establish his millennial kingdom, millennial so-called, because it will last for a thousand years, that he will literally reign from the throne of David, from uh, Jerusalem, over the kingdoms of the earth. Hence so, pre, because that has that event has not occurred yet. That's that is correct. That's why we say we're before that kingdom is 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 it has reached its fullness. That, correct. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so this would be the viewpoint if, if, if for, you know, the 300 million people that bought a Left Behind book. 10, 20 years ago. That's right. This would be very uh, you know, similar it, to the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins um, methodology that is laid out in, in those best-selling books. Yeah, I'd be hesitant to say that there's any view that is dominant among the views because I, I think there are smart people that hold all of them. But I would say that um, you know it is one that is commonly held and probably has been ascendant in the last you know, 25, 30 years. Okay. So, Doug, I did something with you I like – Todd, can you think of how many times I've written questions out ahead of time for an interview? It doesn't happen very often. I mean, it, it's it's happened. I, I, in fact, I couldn't tell you the last time. Uh, but this is how both focused I am on this and uneasy I am about this conversation because it, it's it's necessary, 
but it can also, this thing can go off the rails real quick. All right. right. So I wanted to make sure we tried to get questions answered from your book because there'd be no point in asking you about other views other than the views of yourself in the book you wrote to, to get, to get the right questions to your views. So we had a good understanding of where you are coming from, because even if there is disparate views within the premillennial view, the view that you express here in your book is, is the large consensus of that view. Is that fair? I think that's right. I mean, I think my book's a little different from some other prophecy books in that, you know, they tend to dwell on the events that will happen during the tribulation, for example, a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that's in the book of Revelation. And really, I'm writing about things rebuilding of the temple, books. the appearance of two witnesses, Correct. persecutions, yeah. the mark of the beast. Those are the, the bulls, things you're referencing. The judgments, right. Yeah. You know, the um, there's all of that stuff. And in my book, I'm really looking at clues that show up in other parts of the Bible that signal the coming of those things. Um, so until really you get to the last chapter where I kind of give a summary of how I think things are likely to unfold, I don't really talk much about Revelation. I'm looking at prophecies in Daniel and Hosea and you know other parts of the New Testament about what um, signals the you know the that we're in, in this season. So I think I'm a little different from some in that I don't spend a lot of time kind of dwelling on those apocalyptic mm-hmm. um, events. All right, with that preamble out of the way, let's get to the first question I have. And the reason I chose this question is not just because it's a central theme of your book. I mean, the subtitle is The Completion of the Great Commission and Nine Other Clues That Jesus is Coming Soon. It's because this is actually something that is typically associated with a post-millennial mm-hmm. view. And so I found it fascinating that you're that one of the, the one of the takeoff the main takeoffs of your book in support of a premillennial view is something often associated to postmillennial views. So let's go ahead and throw that question back up there, Aaron. Why do you think the completion of the Great Commission is vital to the second coming of Christ? The the short answer to that would be because he said so, um, and the longer answer would be to take a quick journey through. Matthew chapter 24, we call that the Olivet Discourse. It's also in Luke 21. It's also in the book of Mark. That chapter begins with the disciples, the apostles admiring the temple, and then Jesus kind of stuns them like he often does by saying, you know, you see these things, not one stone here will be left on another. They're stunned, so they ask him a question. Uh, It's actually two questions wrapped into one. They say, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. In other words, they're asking very directly, Jesus, when will you be coming back? Mm -hmm. And in that chapter, he goes through a number of things. Some of the things that we're most familiar with is signs of the return of Christ, like wars and rumors of war and pestilence and, you know, apostasy in the church. All of that's in chapter 24. But then in verse 14, he says very explicitly, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in response to a direct question from the disciples, when are you coming back? His direct answer was, uh, when you have finished the job that I've given you to do of taking the gospel to every nation so that there are followers of Jesus in every nation, that will open the door to my return. I think that's a significant benchmark because, uh, Doug, when in human history has there not been wars and rumors of war? Right. When in human history has there not been famine and pestilence? Pretty much since the third chapter of Genesis 3, 
it's it's our Facebook status update, right? Yeah, and right. So yeah. so there's no way to delineate that. That that's consistently that's a consistent benchmark of living east of Eden. So in st- so this is what this is why I like that you've married some of this post millennial view to your view, whether I don't, it's right or not. I don't know, but I like that it but, but because now we're getting into specifics. It's not. How Lindsay, I wrote a book 30 years ago that Jesus returns in 1988. I changed it because they didn't really actually, the Jews take over Jerusalem until the war of Yom Kippur. So it's 40 years after that. I mean, what is the plumb line we're dealing with here? And so what I like is that you have affixed something from the word of God that is a very specific event. Have we ever been this close to actually taking the gospel to the entire world than we are right now? And I think anybody would obviously say with today's technology, the answer to that question is no. Right. I mean, this has been unfolding over the last couple of decades in ways that would have been really unimaginable previously. When my mentor, Paul Eshelman, started the ministry finishing the task in 2005, there were 3,500 unengaged people groups in the world. That is to say, out of 12,000 groups total, 3,500 no one had ever been to uh, with the gospel. Today, 16, 17 years later, we're down to maybe 300 that nobody has ever been to with the gospel. And I've spent all day today, and when we're done, I'll spend the rest of the day working on projects to send missionaries for the first time to those remaining groups. I I think by God's grace that we could be started in all the rest of the groups by the end of next year. Mm. Um, So yes, it's correct to say never in history have we been so close to seeing that finish line crossed. All right. Number two, Um, you think the phrase like a thief in the night. Now this is very part and parcel to the amillennial view we'll discuss towards the end here, but you think the phrase like a thief in the night describes how unbelievers will see the return of Christ and not believers. Why is that? Because this is usually associated with believers and unbelievers alike, just humanity as a mm-hmm. sea in one fell swoop. You don't believe that's the case. Define that for us. So that that metaphor of the thief in the night, it's Jesus used it. He used it in Matthew chapter 24, telling people, using it as a metaphor for the you know ret- his return. Uh, and obviously the the you know implication of that uh, metaphor is unpredictability. You know you don't know when the thief is is going to come. But Paul also uses that same image in First Thessalonians chapter five. First and second Second Thessalonians are really important books about understanding the timing of some of these end times events. That's because people in that church believe they had missed it, and so he's clarifying it for them. Yeah, they were freaked right. out because they thought they were living in the Great Tribulation, and mm-hmm. he's calming them down. He's telling them, no, you know, let me under- reiterate what I've taught you before. But here's what he says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So that sounds like kind of the same thing, what Jesus said. But then in verse four, he says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. And I take that to mean that, you know, believers will not be surprised by the return of the Lord. Hence the conversation I'm willing to have right now, because I'm looking at the signs of the times thinking, maybe I should entertain this more than I have in the past, right? That's kind of what you're talking about. Those 
those who are awake and aware will know that we're living in the season of the Lord's return. Now, you know, it's, it's, I think it's the fair way to talk about this is to say that there is a tension in the scriptures about how much and whether we can know about the timing of the Lord's return. There are things that Jesus says that make it seem like we can't know anything about it, like about that hour and day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, uh, or, not, or, or even me, the son, but only the father. But then again, within a few verses of that, he says, even so, when you see all these things, you will know that the end is near right at the door. So I think, you know, the tension is we can't know exactly the hour or the day, but we clearly, I think, can know the season. There's enough clues in the scripture that give us a sense that we're living in the, the time. By season, I mean, you know, the few years, the decades of when these things will, will take place. So, you know, I, I honor that tension. I don't, uh, you know, I don't mean to discount it, but I, I don't think it means that we can't know anything about this. I think we actually can know quite a bit, if not to the exact day or the, or the hour. Right, that's a good segue to the next question, because this is something I've encountered in the last few years studying this, actually, or the last few months, I should say. The phrase, no one knows the day or hour. When Christ uses that in reference to his return, we have traditionally, particularly in the evangelical Protestant circles, taken that literally, Okay. But there's a lot of evidence that this is a reference to a very specific Jewish idiom common among the people at the time that he was referring to it to something that they would actually culturally understand. Can you can you enlighten us on this? Yeah, I I, I want to keep this short as I can. So interrupt me if I you know if you need me to say more. But um, in one of the chapters of the book, we talk about the seven feasts of Israel. And how Jesus either has fulfilled in his first coming, or I believe will fulfill in his second coming, all seven of those feasts. So just to give you a sense of that, Jesus was crucified on Passover, fulfilling Passover. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was buried on uh, the, the uh, unleavened bread. He was raised on first fruits. He sent his spirit on Pentecost. Pentecost so right, yeah. Those are four, right, of the seven. Uh, I personally believe that he was born during uh, one of the fall feasts, the feasts of tabernacles. Uh, others think that that has not been fulfilled yet. I don't pick a fight with them, but I, I think it's interesting. But that leaves two: um, the feast of trumpets and the feast of uh, called the Day of Atonement uh, for Jesus to fulfill. I believe he'll fulfill those in in his second coming. And I believe that the way he will fulfill those is that the rapture is likely to take place during the Feast of Trumpets, and that his final second return at the end of the tribulation will take place on the Day of Atonement. Now, the phrase that you have mentioned, no one knows the hour of the day, may be, I think may very well be a, a Jewish idiom that refers to the Feast of Trumpets. And I can go as far into that as you want me to go in the, um, you know, as, if we have time here as much as you'd like me to. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an, an interesting tension when Jesus says that, that he may very well have been pointing his disciples toward a very specific two-day period in each mm -hmm. year as the time when he would return. I'm inclined to think that there are other biblical clues that trumpets will be associated with the rapture. Paul talks about, you know, at the sound of the last trumpet, you know, these things will happen. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. I think that's another clue that trumpets is probably the, the time of that rapture event. Um, but it's intriguing to think that Jesus may have been pointing to that when he said, you know, these things that we interpret to mean you can't know anything about his return. 
So basically you're predicting that you believe Jesus, the church will be raptured and Jesus returns. Like aren't those two shelf, aren't those both in September typically, or sometime in, right, in late the in the summer yeah. or early yeah. fall. I, I have, um, I've marked out the feast of trumpets on my calendar for the next five or six years, because I want to always be aware of when that's going to be to be coming. I, I I think that will happen. It's it's interesting. The Feast of Trumpets uh, is celebrated over a two day period for historical reasons by the Jews. It's not a one day feast. It's a two day feast. For that reason, it can be true that we could know that he's coming during that feast and still not know the day or the hour, because it could be the first day or the second day of that feast in one of the upcoming years. So um, I don't think that's inconsistent with thinking about that statement as pointing to the- Hence the, the reference to it being a Jewish idiom of the time. Correct. Okay. All right. Um, fourth, like a lot of prophecy students or experts, you believe the angel Gabriel specifically foretold to Daniel the first coming of Christ. Can you explain why, and then tell us if he did the same for the second? And why do you think the Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim sanctuary on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, why do you think that plays into this at all? Yeah, so this is a tricky one to do, uh, you know, kind of orally, because there's a lot of numbers and and stuff like that. But let me let me give it a shot, right? So um, a lot of Bible scholars, as you say, think that Daniel chapter 9 records a revelation from Gabriel to Daniel um, that predicts the first coming of Jesus. It's often called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Daniel uh, Daniel receives this from Gabriel, and Gabriel says, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 72 sevens. So, now, that's just, you know, very obscure. It's very, very tricky to figure out what that um, exactly means. But um, you can break it down, uh, that it's a, it describes an interval of time that begins with one event. The, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, uh, and it lasts for 69 sevens, whatever that means, and it ends with the coming of the anointed one, the ruler. The, the last part of that's the one part that we can surely understand, you know, exactly what it means the word there is the word uh, Messiah, clearly pointing to the coming of the first coming of the of the Messiah. A lot of people believe that those sevens describe seven year periods of time. So 69 sevens would be 483 years. And in the book, we make the case that the beginning event, the rebuilding of the city, the, the decree to rebuild the city occurred in 455 BC. It's the, it's the uh, order that's recorded in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter right. two. Yep. Um, and if you do the math, 455 plus 483 years takes you to 29 AD, um, which is as good a date as any for the, the coming of the Messiah. That might, might very well be the date of his baptism. Uh, it could be, depending on you know how you've reckoned times, it could be his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, you know, it it it's a little hard. But it puts to you in exactly the ballpark of when we historically associate Christ's ballpark. earthly I, ministry to some extent. I, I think if we knew exactly all the pieces that we can't know, we would know that it predicted something exactly precisely. So okay, let's pause there because I'm up against a break. So that yep. de- that describes the first coming. Okay. Right. When we come back, I want to apply this now 
to the second coming. All right. And, and what that what you think that looks like. Okay. If you are struggling with receding hairline and male pattern baldness, you don't have to do that anymore. There's a reason our friends at Keeps are the real deal. And they've got more five-star reviews than any of their competitors because they offer the same doctor-recommended FDA-approved hair loss treatment, but the generic version, so you get those at about half the cost. And then there's everything done online, so you get all kinds of convenience. Just answer a few easy questions, snap a few pics of your hair, and then a licensed doctor reviews your info to recommend the right hair loss treatment for you. So big savings all the time with generics, convenience all the time online, and even bigger savings the first time to get you started. Half off your first order. 50% off your first order on top of all the other savings you get all the time when you go to keeps.com slash grow. K-E-E-P-S, just like it sounds, for keeps.com slash grow. Let's get you started today with that special discount at keeps.com slash grow. We're talking to Douglas Cobb. Name of the book, And Then the End Will Come, The Completion of the Great Commission, and Nine Other Clues that Jesus is Coming Soon. I am fascinated as the amillennial Catholic sitting here listening to this. In 10 seconds, 30 seconds, what's your, what's your instant reaction so far? I'm in because it comes across as uh, very earnest and uh, not defensive at all. Okay. We'll come back and we'll pick it up right from there. All right. So the math works out on the Daniel prophecy to the first coming from Nehemiah until Christ. What does it say about the second? Next. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. Following the truth, no matter where it leads, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here with uh, prophecy student Douglas Cobb. He has written a book. We've promoted it on our show here uh, previously on a special evergreen edition of the Steve Day Show. And then the end will come, the completion of the Great Commission and nine other clues that Jesus is coming soon. All right, so Doug, let's go back to where we left off before the break. We were talking about the prophecies of Daniel, and when you look at the timetable, uh, for the first coming of Christ, it works out. It, it, it takes you from the time of Nehemiah taking the order uh, from Susa and then going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, rededicate the city. Uh, it takes you right sometime smack dab into the middle of Christ's uh, reign or Christ's uh, earthly ministry. Correct. Now apply this to the second coming of Christ. What do we get? So here's what's here's what's really fascinating. Daniel chapter 12 um, is all about the end times. It's the only place in the Old Testament you really read about the Great Tribulation. It's the only place you read about the resurrection. Um, and at the end of that chapter in verses 11 and 12, I'm going to use the common English Bible translation here. There's these two enigmatic verses. Here's what it says. It says, there will be 1,290 days from the time the daily sacrifice is stopped to the setting up of the desolating monstrosity, happy is the one who waits and reaches 1,335 days. So that, like, again, that's kind of just wild. You know, who, what, what in the world could that possibly mean? I've actually taught the book of Daniel, I think three times, and I've read the, the commentaries. And 
basically nobody has a good idea what that those two verses mean they kind of throw up their hands and say you know it's just a mystery but what's intriguing to me is that it is parallel in form to the daniel 9 prophecy because it has a beginning event from the time the daily sacrifice is stopped and an ending event the setting up of the desolating monstrosity other translations call that the abomination that causes desolation same same idea and it has an interval of 1290 days. And so in the book, I make the case that the beginning event uh, of the abolishment of the daily sacrifice is a reference to the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, which took place between 605 BC and 587 BC. We know that somewhere in that period of time, those 18 years, uh, the Babylonians destroyed the temple and put an end to the uh, the, pro the, the daily sacrifice. We can't know exactly when in that period of time, but we know that it happened somewhere in that interval. And uh, I also make the case in the book. This that would have been Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian captivity. This is where Daniel is taken away from, from Israel and taken to be essentially uh, reconditioned as a Babylonian. Correct. He, okay. he goes in 605. The, the city is finally leveled in 587, and there's another battle in between those. So Ark of the Covenant is lost. Interval, the original sacrificial system, temples, toast, to gone. Right. Okay. Comes to an end. Right. So, um, so you know, for simplicity's sake, let's assume that the, the date of that was 597 BC. I, I happen to think that's probably the most likely date, but I'm not going to die on that hill. But if you add the 1290 years to 597 BC, you come up with 694 AD. And interestingly, at that exact time, the Dome of the Rock, which is a, an Islamic shrine, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, if you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount, it's the dominant feature on the Temple Mount now. The dome was being built at exactly that time on the Temple Mount uh, on the side of the temple, and some people think literally right on the side of the Holy of Holies in the temple. There's disagreement about that, but um, a lot of people believe that. In the book, I make the case that the dome satisfies the definition of an abomination that causes desolation. Sorry to be politically incorrect about that, but um, the fact is the, the, the dome is inscribed with all kinds of blasphemies against the God of the Bible and against Jesus Christ. And it's that which that makes it an abomination and its placement on the Temple Mount renders the Mount desolate in the sense of unfit for its intended purpose. The Temple Mount is intended for the temple. It's intended for the sacrifice. But as long as the dome is there, those things cannot uh, happen. So it's interesting to think that the dome may be one of the Bible's instances of this thing called the abomination that causes desolation so you with me so far i am that? yeah i have a here's the question i have as a follow-up though okay by the time christ is on earth the the temple has been rededicated it's mm -hmm. been expanded by herod the great mm -hmm. the the priesthood is restored mm -hmm. the sacrificial system is restored right so why wouldn't we then say that this actually begins at 70 a.d or more specifically uh, I, I, I get the order missed up. One is Hadrian, one is Titus. Was 110 when they took it apart brick by brick, and that yeah. was really the end, and it's never returned since then. Why wouldn't we say that's actually the time period? 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And people speculate on that Daniel uh, 12 passage about many different times when that could be. It could be the time you've mentioned in 70 AD, the, the sacrifice was ended then. It could be a couple of centuries earlier when the guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, mm -hmm. you know, sacrificed a pig on the altar. This is the Maccabee Rebellion, a revolt the for people who want to know what that It had is, to be yeah. rededicated at that time. A lot of people think that the end of the sacrifice referred to in Daniel 12 is something that hasn't even happened yet. In other words, the sacrifice will be reinstated and then ended right. in the future, right? Um but the way I think about this is um, the angel is speaking to Daniel when he gives this prophecy. And if you said to Daniel from the time the sacrifice was ended, what is he going to think about? He knows when it ended. He, he was a wit an eyewitness to that. Mm -hmm. He participated in that in his lifetime. I think from the, you know, one of the key concepts of biblical interpretation is context. And I think in the context, the, the immediate assumption would be that Daniel understands that to mean from the things that I saw happen in the earlier years of my life gotcha. from the Babylonian now, captivity. Now, those who are post-mill and amill, they're like, we don't have to worry about this. This was if this, the, the first Matthew did already works itself out, and, and so now we're into a new age. That, I mean, that's what they would say. We don't have to figure right. out this, this future conundrum because the first Matthew did works its, itself completely out perfectly, so we're past that now. Right. Now, there's one more part about this, though, that we don't want to miss, right? The, the Daniel 12 prophecy has that little sentence that says, happy is the one who waits and reaches 1,335 mm -hmm. days, right? And what in the world does that mean, right? Well, I think it describes an additional interval that begins with the construction of the dome, the setting up of the abomination, and it lasts another 1,335 years. And if you do that math, 694 AD plus 1335 years is 2029 AD. Now, we can't be precise about that date because remember, we don't know exactly when the sacrifice was ended by the Babylonians. It could have been anywhere in that interval, right? But I think probably that this prophecy predicts the timing of the second coming in much the same way that the Daniel 9 prophecy predicted the first coming. I think Dan God honored Daniel not only by telling him when Jesus would come the first time, but when he would come the second time as well. Hey, pet owners, we've been telling you for a while now about our friends over at Rough Greens. It's that supplement powder that you mix into your pet's food. And with that one simple act, you have likely restored all the vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and so much more, all that good stuff that was likely stripped from your dog's food before it ever left the factory for the same reason they do it for, for we as people with our food too, because they want it for mass distribution and longer shelf life. And so that's why we take so many supplements as people. Now there's one for your pet, but you might be wondering what if it doesn't work or my dog doesn't like it how about we give you that first 14 day jumpstart bag for free you just pay for the shipping but we'll pick up the bigger cost with that first bag for free to see if you don't see a difference in your pet in two weeks or less when you go to roughgreens.com r-u-f-f for roughgreens.com that's how they spell it r-u-f-f or give them a call at 833-ROUGHDOG that's 833-ROUGHDOG all right, we're going to skip a couple questions because we kind of already covered them when we discussed the Feast of Trumpets and things of that nature, okay? Is it fair to say, looking at your book, that you believe Christ will return by 2068 at the latest? Is that fair? I kind of laughed when I saw that question because I would think that would be an extreme outer bound, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, I think that the anniversary, the 2000 year anniversary of Jesus crucifixion, resurrection and ascension is a big is a big deal. Um, and we don't know exactly when those things happened. The you know, kind of the conventional wisdom is it was 33 A.D. Some people think as early as 28, 29, 30. Um, there's different opinions about that. Uh, but I think whichever that year is, the 2,000-year anniversary of that date is a very big deal. That's based on a, you know, a number of biblical prophecies, probably most importantly, the prophecy of Hosea chapter 5 and 6 that I talk about in the book, where um, God says he's going to withdraw for 2,000 years, but then will uh, renew his um, uh, relationship with the Jewish people and, um, you know, dwell with them for a, another thousand years. So I think that anniversary is going to be a, a big deal. All right, we got six minutes left. I'm going to turn you over. I'm going to let Todd and Aaron get into this conversation now. <laughs> All right. Questions, comments, or insults on what we've discussed so far? Well, wh what's the criticism uh, that you have received on all of it. And by the way, uh, my biggest yo moment so far was when you, you talked about the abomination of desolation as it applies to Dome of the Rock. That That is absolutely fascinating. But what's the biggest criticism you received about everything you've laid out that you respect the most? Um, I, I think probably it would be from the, you know, missiological world, whether I'm right about the, you know, um, near finish line of the Great Commission. There are people who have different opinions about that. Uh, I'm involved enough in it that I feel pretty confident about, well, I certainly feel confident about the part that I'm working on, the getting the gospel to the remaining people groups. Um, you know, there's others who think we need to translate the scripture into every language, very respectful of that. I think that's important to try to do. Others that are working on getting the gospel to every village in the world, which is a slightly different goal. You know, but even those guys, the folks that are working on those two missions, uh, have set 2033 as their deadline. So the, those finish lines may not be quite as close as the one I'm working on, but it's they're still, uh, you know, really close in the in the scales of time that we're we're talking about. But I'm I'm very open to other criticisms from the missions community that there's more to do than I think, or you know that I've missed some piece of this. I don't think that's right, but I'm I'm respectful of, of that. I don't want to uh, diminish anybody's you know point of view on that. I, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but how long does a certain population need to have uh, the uh, gospel? How long do they need to marinate it so that they've received it according to these rules? I mean, Paul had to keep going back, you know, stupid Galatians. Why aren't you getting this? Right. You've been right. laying that out. Is there a sense of what means you've they've had enough time? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, Todd. The um, you know, the Bible all it, all Jesus says is we need to make disciples. Uh, disciples are different from believers. Uh, you know, you become a believer first, and then you become a disciple. How long that take takes, I think, varies from place to place and from person to person. We know that Paul, in many cases, you know, left cities where he had planted churches within a few days or weeks. You know, sometimes he was driven out very quickly. Other times he was in places for. You know, I think in Ephesus for about three years, um, you know, really working there. The projects that we sponsor through the Finishing Fund are all three-year projects. Mm -hmm. So we send missionaries to go to a place to tell people about Jesus, to plant churches, and to lead those churches for three years so that people have time to, you know, really get to know the gospel. So um, I hope that's enough time. It may not be, but, you know, I think that's a 
at least a reasonable biblical model for, you know, that, that making that disciple making process. Aaron, you have something for Doug? I'm just going to rip off one of the questions that we didn't get to because I was going to, I was interested in hearing his response. How much have you studied of the other dominant views on eschatology, post-mill amillennialism, amillennialism, easy for me to say. How much study yeah. have you done on them and what do you think of those two views? I've done some, um, you know, I, I've read uh, different points of view. Uh, I wanted to be sure I understood those as a part of the process for the, the book. Interestingly, my pastor is a, has an amillennial point of view. So we've talked about this quite a lot. Uh, I was encouraged in his review of my book that he said, look, you don't pick the fight that most people pick, that you're either in my camp or, you know, uh, nobody's. And I think in fact, from an amillennialist point of view, virtually everything I talk about in my book is something that they could agree with. You know, postmillennialists think Jesus comes back after we usher in the millennial kingdom and things are getting better and better. Uh, and when we finally get things just right, Jesus will come back. I think that view has some real challenges because it certainly seems to cut against what seems to be happening in the world, right? The world does not in many ways seem to be getting better and better. Amillennialists have a very high view of the church. They see the church as the kingdom of God, and they therefore see the current church age as representative of the millennium, uh, and that Jesus, you know, will come back at some unknown time, you know, uh, after that. Uh, like a thief in the night, right. At some, yeah, after that millennial period. I'm very respectful of that because I have a high view of the church as well and, you know, don't want to, you know, be dismissive of that. But there's some challenges. For instance, you know, uh, Revelation says that during that millennial period, the, the enemy will be bound. Uh, if he's bound, I'd hate to see what it's like when he's unbound, both in my, you know, personal life and in the world. It seems to me like he's raging around. And, you know, I hope when he's bound, it will be a very different thing. So, uh, while I'm very respectful of the amillennial point of view, you know, that's not the one that I've decided to, um, to adopt. The name of the book, and then the end will come, the completion of the Great Commission and nine other clues that Jesus is coming soon. And you heard Douglas Cobb, he guaranteed Jesus is back here by 2030. You guaranteed it, Doug. I don't think that's what I said, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my opinion is it's going to be very soon. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I've studied all three of these views probably too much for my own good. Um, I, I find a, a glaring hole or contradiction in all three of them. Hmm. The, the one issue that I think the other two have, where if I were to give premillennialism its biggest advantage, is we, can get, we didn't get into terms like preterism or any of that kind of stuff. No. Th those would be longer form conversations. But the one thing, because I, I think I could historically explain a lot of the things you guys on the pre-mill side are attempting to decipher as previous historical events. The one thing, though, that I can't is Paul, and you mentioned Thessalonians, Paul makes it very clear to them that there would be a man of lawlessness to come in the future, a central figure. Mm -hmm. And I do think the other two views don't have a good answer for that one, but it's a fantastic conversation, man. Good book. Thank you for joining us today, man. Really appreciate it. Good stuff. Steve, thank you very much. Love your show. Thank you for having me on. You bet. We'll come back. A conversation about race with Jason Whitlock is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.
lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Back with Hour 2 here on a special evergreen edition of the Steve Dace Show. That would be me, Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre. We'll be joined by our good friend and colleague, Jason Whitlock, here in a moment. First, a reminder to let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. You can access that by emailing the show, Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And if you don't like censorship, and you should not, then just follow me on MeWe, Parlor, Gab, and Getter instead. You can also get free clips of the show. Don't go to the other place. Go to the place that doesn't censor us at Rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show again. That's rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. And if you're a podcast listener, thank you so much. Uh, You're a big factor in this show's growth over the last couple of years. Please, if you have yet to do so, though, leave us a five-star review only if you like it. Now, if you don't like it, don't lie. Maybe just keep that to yourself and maybe stop wasting your time. If you kind of like it, though, we would totally ask you to embellish. All right? But uh, if you like it even a little, give us a five-star review And then, of course, hit the subscribe or follow button, whichever the case may be, wherever you may choose to podcast. And thanks to so many of you, the thousands of you that have done those two things for us already. We are appreciative of each and every one. You know, there are 360 places in your body, we call them joints, uh, where dreaded inflammation can seep in and likely be the cause of your chronic pain. What do I mean by chronic pain? I'm not, hey, I fell off a ladder and my back hurts. That's not what we're talking about here. That's injury pain. Go get treatment for that, please. Uh, The chronic pain is the lingering stuff, the achiness, the soreness that just won't go away. And for those 360 joints are from the top of your neck all the way down your back, knees, hips, shoulders, to your feet. That's why you're looking for an all-natural anti-inflammatory backed by 35 years of clinical research as well It's almost two years now of me using it daily, so I can personally attest to the fact that Omega XL works, and it's a great product. If you want to try it today, visit OmegaXL.com slash Steve. Get buy one, get one free at OmegaXL.com slash Steve, or call them at 800-844-4888. Well, on part two of our Evergreen edition here, we thought it was time to have sort of a, a big picture and I mean brutally honest conversation about race in America. And I cannot think of anybody better to have this conversation with than our friend and colleague, award-winning sports writer, and now the host of Fearless here on Blaze TV, the one and only Jason Whitlock. It's good to have you back on the show, brother. How are you? It's good to be back, Steve. Uh, Good to see you. You look awesome. Thank you. Uh, not as good as me, but you look awesome. Uh, you know I look what? better it, than it, awesome. It's hard to look as good as you. I'll take second to you, though. I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. I'll be, I'll, I'll be your ice man uh, there, uh, Maverick. I got you. Okay. So let's, let's start with a big picture question. Where, is, where's, where are race relations in America as we come to the end of 2021 compared to where they were and, and as a standalone? And then let's compare them to where they were in 2011. 2001, and then let's say 1981. What do you think? Well, where we're at right now clearly is, you know, one of the most contentious times and eras uh, that I can remember ever in my lifetime. I think, right, I was born in 1967. I think 
the 20 years before I was born, I think we were at a contentious moment, but I, I felt like it was a positive level of contention and tension and that we were before those 20 years before we were moving forward. Whereas, and, but look, there was a lot of animosity and, and there was a lot of division and, and a lot of friction between the races, but I think it was necessary and healthy. I think we're at now at that same level of friction, but it's, it's not necessary and healthy. Uh, we're not, we're regressing, we're not progressing. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a frightening time. You know, the only thing that provides me a tiny bit of comfort, and, and I say this kind of joking, but I, I'm kind of serious, is that I'm kind of happy that I don't have kids and I'm not leaving this world we've created here in 2020 to any kids of mine because I don't think they'll have the same experience that you and I had growing up as kids where, you know, we had a much more optimistic view on race and each other. Uh, you know, I felt like I grew up in a culture that was uh, Christian, a Judeo-Christian culture of forgiveness and people could make mistakes and we could move beyond people's mistakes. And, and now, you know, we're in a culture that's very secular. Uh, forgiveness is not an option. Mm -hmm. People can't make mistakes and any little slight of word or any word that someone, Oh, <laughs> that word, the way you used it's offensive or whatever we've created, we've created a very polarized America where it's almost, you're almost safer not engaging across racial lines because it's just way too risky. How did this happen in the aftermath of a moment that I think a lot of Americans, regardless of political persuasion, viewed as sort of the, 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 the final dirt on the casket of America's original sin of racism and slavery with the election of Barack Obama? How many people wept over this? People that, in many cases, didn't even vote for him. I, I, I look at my mom. Jason, she had me at 15 years old. I grew up, I was on food stamps, ADC, reduced lunches. My mom hates Repu the Republican Party, thinks they're a bunch of corporatist whores. She's voted for one Republican in her whole life, Ronald Reagan in 1980, because even she had to admit Carter was a systemic failure. She, she called me election night 08, weeping at the election of Barack Obama. By the end of his eight years... We went from we could just could not talk politics because we disagreed so often it would it would get between us to her calling me up convinced Barack Obama the same guy that she wept over his election was actually a closeted communist okay how did this happen how did we get here in the aftermath of what I think a lot of people viewed as the final watershed moment to finally put this sinful past behind us as a people. Man, <clears throat> there's a lot of factors. I'm going to leave a lot of factors out and talk about the factors that I'm most passionate about and informed about. And, and I think one of the biggest driving forces in all of this is social media. Mm. And uh, it's Northern California. 
and it's the algorithms that Silicon Valley has created, and it's the transitioning of America and American culture and even global culture from it, it used to be about your actual engagement with other human beings. Now it's about your engagement with other human beings over your cell phone, over a social media app. Reality is no longer about, hey, I went to dinner and uh, you know had a good time. And when, when people uh, were out and they saw me, hey, that's Jason Whitlock, or hey, that's Chris Berman, or hey, that's Steve Dace. And people are, pl to now it's about, what was your engagement like over social media? And over social media, because there's so much negativity, there's so much trolling, there's so much keyboard bravado, there are so many people performing. I, I, social media is a stage, and people perform on a stage. It's not their real personality. And so much of the world is viewed through the matrix of social media rather than actual reality. And I, I'll give you an example from the sports world that I've heard some ESPN executives talk about back when they used to talk more honestly. It's like uh, Chris Berman the broadcaster at ESPN. He's one of the first guys that social media and the woke mob and just leftist sports media, try, they canceled him basically. And they canceled him through social media. People that worked at ESPN, if you ever went out in public with Chris Berman, sports fans gravitate towards Chris Berman. They love Chris Berman. They love his nicknames, even to this day. Chris Berman goes out in public, people like, oh, that's Chris Berman, love to see you. Do one of those nicknames, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Social media created the perception that everybody hates Chris Berman and that his nicknames are stale and unfunny. And, you know, you had Deadspin, you had social media, everybody attacking Chris Berman. His social media reality completely divorced from his real reality in life. Mm -hmm. And 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 so that's what's happened to a lot of us and a lot of people. We're interpreting the world through our engagement and interaction with people over a computer rather than our engagement and interaction with people face to face. And and because social media baits people to perform there are certain things you have to do to get likes and retweets and to set off that dopamine that a like and a retweet gets you you ha there's a negativity there's a vilification that <clears throat> these social media apps reward and we've all given into it and then so journalists who've had who've seen particularly newspaper print journalists who've seen their business model go away and they just newspapers aren't and magazines aren't flush with cash. And so journalists started covering the world from their laptops rather than from neighborhoods and grocery stores and PTA meetings and school board meetings. Journalists used to have to go out and engage with people in a real way and interview people. And now they just sit at a laptop and go, oh, well, this is what black Twitter is saying, or this is what's getting likes and retweets. And just count the number of stories you'll see in the New York Times or any newspaper that'll say such and such said this, 
and social media reacted this way and Twitter people reacted this way. You don't know if any of that is real. Is it an algorithm that's been triggered to create the perception that everybody hates Chris Berman or everybody thinks that police are out killing black men randomly? I, I, I blame the tech companies and what they've done to uh, power their businesses and to power the social media apps, uh, they have made America a more divisive and polarizing place, and they've done it for profit. You, of course, have had quite the career arc um, from ESPN to Fox Sports, um, to a well-regarded and renowned uh, sports columnist, and now you are a sports uh, socio-commentator here on Blaze TV. So, I mean, you have run the gamut. You have been in, a, in, a, in frankly, a wider array and diversity of thought than the vast majority of Americans have ever been, regardless of how they voted or didn't vote in the last election. I want to I utilize that expertise for a moment. And I want to, I want you to tell our audience, what do you think are the most common mistakes each side of this ideological and or racial divide makes about the other? I, I, I'm not sure if I have a great answer for that. So I'm, I'm going to give you perhaps a different answer than the question you asked. The biggest mistake that everybody is making is identifying themselves by their sexual preference or by their political point of view. I keep saying it over and over and over again. We were a much better society when we identified ourselves by our faith. Oh, I'm a Protestant. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Christian, I'm a Baptist, I'm Protestant, I'm, you know, our faith identity, our identity in Christ used to be first and foremost. And now people, if you go to their, how they identify themselves on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it's by, oh, I'm a conservative, oh, I'm a liberal, oh, I'm MAGA, I'm, I'm, uh, my pronouns are X, Y, and Z. I'm gay. I'm straight. Well, people don't list themselves as they're straight because that'll get you attacked. Uh, <laughs> I'm bisexual. It, it, it's all these other things. And, and, and that has opened the door for the left to mislead people about what's really important. And that's what has started this argument about being on the right side of history. And what actually made America great, what actually allowed America to overcome its sins, its, its immorality, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, uh, women not being allowed to vote, things like that, is, is men, leaders, people used to worry about being on the right side of God. And now we're sitting around worried about being on the right side of history. Well, who writes history? Mm -hmm. 
human beings and people and a lot of these human beings are you know out for political power they're flawed and and history can be written by anybody whoever wins gets to write history and sometimes the bad guys win and and so being on the right side of history just depends on who's writing the history well god gave us a bible and then if you're of other faiths he gave you a torah quran whatever he gave you some something written years and years and years ago and it doesn't change the words in the bible don't change and i know that there has been some tweaking of the Bible, but the truths espoused in the Bible haven't changed. And so when you look at from Thomas Jefferson to George Washington, to Abraham Lincoln, and uh, all these people, our ancestors that are all being demonized and they were terrible people, but they wrote documents that were heavily influenced by their religious faith. And those died, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and, and those things made some promises that eventually the Americans that followed in behind them had to live up to. And, and the reason why we were willing to sacrifice, and I say we, I'm talking about all of us, Americans, were willing to sacrifice our lives uh, in the Civil War was because we wanted to be on the right side of God, and that was most important. They weren't sitting around. You read you you read the lyrics in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's not about well. Let me sacrifice this life so I can be on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. It was about being on the right side of God. And when you look at the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s, people white, black, who made enormous sacrifices so they could be on the right side of God and not on the right side of history. And so, I I, I just. I'm going to go all the way back to what I said about social media and Silicon Valley. They've imposed a secular culture on America. And uh, if we're ever going to snap out of it, if America is ever going to be great again or get back on the path to greatness, or we're going to have to go back to identifying ourselves through our relationship with Christ. and, And that will compel us to do the right thing. If we're going to identify by our sexual preference or sexual desires or political points of view, that's going to compel us to do whatever is in the best interest of Republicans or Democrats, do whatever's in the best interest of the LGBTQ, uh, or again, now we're all into this racial identity stuff, that's going to compel us to do what's ever in the best interest of our race. And, and, and race, sexuality, uh, political party, none of that's about being on the right side of, of truth, really, of the right side of God. And so I, I say that I know there's a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans that think, well, you know, my political point of view is on the right side of God. I, I, I'm, I'm not a thousand percent sure of that. I think you're, it's on the right side of political power, <laughs> but... I don't, I don't think Jesus was a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative or a liberal. Uh, you know, he was someone that tried to live a righteous life and uh, tried to and did live up to the worldview of God and a higher power. And, and, and I'm just those of us that are concerned about this country, we got to put our faith on our sleeves 
and 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 that's our only way out of this mess. I'm not. I mean, what you're describing basically is, is we're trading our identity um, made in the image of God for idols, idolatry. That that everything you just described there, and and some of those things can be noteworthy. It's important to be politically active in a self-governing society, for example. But if that's your source of identity, as opposed to a result of the belief system you have, those are two totally different things. And and along those lines, I'm not a huge fan of of ret- of retconning from the right, because I don't like it when leftist agitprop, from their perspective, I don't like retconning from the right either, you know? So I'm not a big whole Martin Luther King Jr., if we were alive today, would have been a Republican. I don't know. I've read a lot of Martin Luther King Jr.'s remarks, and frankly, I kind of think if he were alive today, he probably would have been the kind of Democrat Bill Clinton was, fairly socially conservative and pretty big government, okay? But one of the things I do find fascinating Reading, um, I mean, Letter from a Birmingham Jail is one of the plumb lines for how I've done this show my whole career, for example. And and so reading speeches and, and, and his essays, I do sense, though, there is a dramatic difference between the, fra- the, the premise of the argument he often made to the arguments that we have associated with, with civil rights leaders today. Where and you correct me if you think I'm wrong on this. What but what I hear and read from him in his time is a demand for for people that are black to have access to the same birthright that it means to be an American. That same history, that same legacy, those same founding uh, documents, those same ideals. Hey, we worked these lands. We died for this country. We fought in those wars. We are owed that legacy. We're owed that birthright. We have done a predominant amount of working and dying in this country. We've earned it, and it's wrong to deny it of us. To what I hear today, our civil rights leaders, essentially, that that birthright and legacy is evil. It's inherently bad. It's systemically racist. Am I wrong in that observation, Jason? Not at all. Uh, That is a thousand percent accurate. And it, it, it tells you that there's been a pivot away from Dr. King's legacy and, and what he represented and stood for. And there's an agenda here to completely redo America. The people, there are, there are people working to undermine our U.S. Constitution and make the argument that America is a failure and that uh, it was doomed to be a failure because Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, they were all flawed white men and, and are just flawed men. And, and, and my problem with their argument is like, there's only been one unflawed person, Mm -hmm. Jesus. So it doesn't matter if, if Nelson Mandela had written our constitution, he would have been a flawed man mm-hmm. writing our Constitution. There have been men all over the globe that have tried to come up with a system of government that works as well as America. There have been black men that have tried it, brown men, yellow men, white men in other parts of the con- a, a globe that have, and none of them were able to do what those that Ben Franklin and uh, <laughs> George Washington and those guys did. They they. 
they couldn't come up with documents that worked as well. They couldn't come up with a system that worked as well. And so uh, these people now today that want to say, well, well, their flaws cancel out the brilliance of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, those are just really people, those are wolves in sheep's clothing. What They, they want to install Marxism. The yes. elites, the elites... Have decided that China's system of government works better than ours, mm -hmm. and and they're trying to input. They want us to get on board with what China's doing, and and things should operate here the same way because that system does favor a handful of very powerful elites, and people like Steve Dace and Jason Whitlock. Our stories are rare in China. Again, Steve just told you he grew up to a 15-year-old mother on food stamps. I've been very crystal clear. My parents divorced when I was five years old. Uh, I went through some real poverty early in my childhood and then late in my teenage years. Me and my dad living in a 400-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment in Indianapolis in 1984. You'd, in China, you don't get to be Jason Whitlock and overcome all of that and elevate uh, to uh, to the level that I have been able to do in my career. And so that's why I'm like, hey, man, these people are crazy if and they're using race to convince working class and poor people that no, 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 this system's going to be better for you guys. This system's going to serve. No, it's going to serve the elites. In every communist country, there's a handful of elites that eat and live very well. Everybody else is in a bread line. And there's no real shot of them ever getting out of that bread line. And so here in America, there's, there's more economic elevating that has gone on in our system than any place on the globe in the history of the world. America is the land of opportunity. That's why people are beating down doors to get into America. That's why our southern border, it's a conga line of people trying to get in. The, the black people from Africa and every place on the, on the continent trying to get into America. If America was this irredeemably racist and so... Uh, the playing field was so tilted against black people. I'm just sorry. These black people that keep trying to immigrate and do immigrate into, the, they're not idiots. And many of them come over here with a completely different mindset and do very well in this country despite their black skin. And so, um, look, I, I, I just think it's very obvious that Companies like Nike and other global corporations that started here in America, they're all shorting America and they're going long on China. They think that system mm. works best for them and they're using their corporate influence and using the influencers they've bought and paid for to promote the myth that America's a failure and that we'd be better off as a socialist or communist country. And 
it's frightening how many people are going for this obvious lie. I'm up against a break. There's one big question I want to ask you before we let you go. Well, you know, I love talking about Built Bar. It is the absolute most fantabulous, delicious protein bar you've ever had. Easy on the tummy, not loaded with carbs, calories, and sugars, packed with all kinds of flavor, and then packed with the protein you're looking for. It's like, wow, why didn't anybody ever invent a healthy candy bar? They did. It's called Built Bar. Try all of their absolutely outstanding flavors. They've debuted several new ones here during the holiday season, all covered in 100% real chocolate. All right? Share them with everybody you know. That's what I do because that's how great this product is. So give it a shot right now. Use my last name, Dace, D-E-A-C-E, as your promo code to get 15% off when you get Built Bars on their website at Built.com. Built.com. Use the promo code DACE to get 15% off your order today. Built.com, promo code DACE. One big question I want to ask you before we let you go. Thankfully, this is an evergreen, so you wanted to sit through six minutes of commercials. We're going to be right back in real time. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to help us chart a way out of this because it it sort of sounds as if you think a lot of this is political propaganda for the acquisition and elevation of Marxist political power. So then what's our way out of this? We'll discuss that here with Jason Whitlock on Blaze TV radio and podcast in a moment. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. Back again with Jason Whitlock. We've got one last final question for him. And then the three of us, myself, Todd, and Aaron, will close things out here the rest of the way. So I I said something before the break. I want to make sure I don't put words in your mouth. But it sounds like you think a lot, not all. I mean, because we are sinners, because we do have these divisions, there are legitimate racial disparities and things to overcome. I find we often don't talk about them. I grew up in the state of Michigan, for example, um, you know, over 90% of, of uh, K through 12 students in Detroit public schools are black. Uh, you know, a fraction of them are reading and, and science uh, proficient according to government standards. Al Sharpton never does a show about that, though. There's no, there's no money to be made in, in helping those kids. So, what, but it sounds to me like you think a lot of this is merely a launching off point for the acquisition of leftist political power is before I get to the final question, do you, is that a fair characterization of what you were just describing? Yeah, I I think that the conversation about race that we've been having in America for the last decade has all been a smokescreen to acquire power. If you package things in race, and then say, if you disagree, well, you're racist. That, that, that shuts down dissent. That shuts down an honest conversation. It's been a brilliant 
political tactic mm-hmm. by Democrats and the left. And so everything, and, and this goes all the way to uh, the way they got uh, same-sex marriage legalized here in America. And yet it was packaged as a black issue because Barack Obama, the black president, was in charge of ushering that across the finish line. And so black people, because the the Democrats knew that in order, the left knew that in order to get same-sex marriage across the finish line without destroying the Democratic Party, you had to get black people on board. And so if Bill Clinton had tried to do it, uh, it, it wouldn't have, black people would have abandoned the Democratic Party over their racial beliefs. Once you do it with Barack Obama as the face of it, black people are now put Mm -hmm. in a choice between choosing their race or choosing their faith. And unfortunately, a lot of us chose our race over our faith. And and we pretended like LGBT issues are go hand in hand with black issues. It's been a brilliant strategy by the Democrats. It's it. Being accused of being a racist, or if you're black, being accused of being a sellout, an Uncle Tom or whatever, stops people from saying what they really believe. It, it's been an an effective strategy. So chart us a path out of this, brother. What What's the path forward? What gets us back on the narrow road? What, what gets us back towards the light here? Where do we go? I, I've talked about it at the beginning of this a little bit, but I'll, I'll dig a little bit deeper in terms of, look, those of us that believe going to have to start wearing our faith and, and, and standing on those principles. I think it worked well for Glenn Youngkin and Winsome Sears in Virginia. When you lean into your faith and, and wear that on your sleeves, I think it gives people a chance to actually hear you and not go, Oh, Oh, well, that's a Republican. They're racist. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a conservative. They're racist. Oh, that's a black person, a Republican Party. That's a sellout. Once you put Jesus on the table, I, I think people have to like, OK, well, hold on. Let me hear what they're really saying. They're saying this from a Christian uh, worldview. I, I get it. And so I think what's critical for, for those of us, and, and this is why I came to The Blaze, so that Jason Whitlock and Steve Dace, Jason Whitlock and Glenn Beck, Jason Whitlock and Mark Levin, Jason Whitlock and Dave Rubin could have conversations between black and white people where there's a chance for people to actually hear what we're saying. And it's, it's, it's why I'm building my show the way that I am in terms of I wanted to create a show that was primarily black people talking, but black people that share a worldview, share uh, a common culture and values uh, so that some of the things that we're saying, those of us that are believers just can't be dismissed as, Oh, that's what white people think. Mm And 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 then I want to invite Steve Dace and Glenn Beck and other people at the Blaze. Come on my show. Let me come on your show. Let's engage. Let's let people see who we really are without just being able to dismiss us as, oh, he's a sellout or oh, he's a racist. Because I think I still believe in humanity and people and human beings and that 
when they hear the truth, they will respond and react appropriately. People generally die from what they don't know. Hmm. And I got to give the left a lot of credit. They put so much bad information out there. There's just a lot people don't know. Go go look at the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and how a lot of people didn't know that Kyle Rittenhouse shot white people. There were many people all the way up until the end of that trial that had no idea. They thought he must have killed some black people that they, they thought. So there's just so many lies out there and there's so much vilification. It's like, you know, when I first met Glenn Beck, uh, I was filled with a lot of the propaganda about Glenn Beck that I'd heard from his days at Fox News. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I actually met him, sat down with him, engaged with him. It was like, oh, my God, this guy's a believer. And this guy, his, he has an authentic passion for harmony and for this country and for people getting along. And, and I just I want other people to have that experience because – I I just think it's necessary, and even I'm. Why am I? Why am I not? Oh, Phil Robertson. Uh, what a great believer! What what a great Christian he is! And there are people. Oh, they know him from Duck Dynasty, and because of the beards and all that, people will automatically think one thing. But I'm hoping that through my experience here at the Blaze, that black people and other people of color. Will, will be like, hey, what's going on with Whitlock and his crew, and why are they comfortable working at the Blaze? And people will start to hear, like, oh, no, 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 no. Those are just believers. Take the their skin color, take whatever, all these other little things you want to identify them by. Those are believers. And then ask yourself, are you a believer? And the, if if believers can't find common ground there's got to be something wrong with the person who's calling himself a believer. I'm just sorry. There's got to be some common ground. And, and, and I think there's plenty of common ground. And so I, I just think we just have to keep spreading the truth as loudly as we can, but let's be very strategic about how we're spreading the truth. Let's make sure that when Steve Day says, hey, Jason, I need you to come on and help me tape an evergreen show, uh, let's make sure I show up and do it, and we have these types of conversations. And Steve, anytime I've asked you to come on my show, you've always been accommodating. I, I just think those of us that are believers, we got to just keep engaging with each other and having these conversations and looking for opportunities to engage with each other across racial lines so that we got to be the change we want to see. And so that's what I'm trying to be. I know that's what you're trying to be. And, you know, I think between the two of us and Glenn Beck and this group here, you know, we can be the change we want to see and be a role model for the country. Very well said, my friend. Thank you for hanging out and doing this with us today. Always good to talk to you. Appreciate what you're doing, man. God bless. All right. God bless you. All right. Take care. It's the one and only Jason Whitlock. All right, man. This so. You know, we went, uh, we, we did the end times, then we did the times in which we live. So we got about six minutes and change here to close this thing out. Gentlemen, what do you think? Well, I'm glad the entire tenor of this 
interview and Jason's whole message was blanketed in wearing your faith on this on your sleeve because when it comes to the issue of race in America in my opinion that is where this battle lies it's not necessarily in public policy it's not necessarily in in mainstream pop culture it's very much a spiritual battle because right now the game plan that the enemy has used with race in America is basically the same game plan he runs for every other major social issue if you don't agree that George Floyd was a saint you are a redneck racist and then that prompts a reaction from those of us who are not redneck racists who think that maybe it was not right for uh, officer, uh, I can't even remember his name, to kneel on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes, but don't think that George Floyd was a saint and that burning cities down is wrong. That prompts a response out of us. There can be no nuance. There can be no nuance whatsoever. Either you're a racist or you're a Marxist. That's the game plan here. Because here's the reality, folks. I, I hate that. I hate that so much. Because there are people my age... Black people my age who had grandmothers, grandpas, alive during times when segregation was still rampant in this country. That's something that we shouldn't shirk back from. It's not something that I'm responsible for, but we shouldn't deny that history either. But the enemy wants there to be no wants there to be no nuance, wants there to be no uh, wants there to be no room for understanding that whatsoever. And it's a great tragedy. Because here's also the reality. Remember a, a few months ago, when we had that uh, when we had that story that CBS News did from Louisiana. They discovered the patriarchy and liked it. The dads on duty that Louisiana high school that had what 23, 30, I think it was twenty or thirty arrests in one week, mm-hmm. and a bunch of dads said, "We're not going to wait on the police. We're not going to wait on the school board. We're just going to take care of this ourselves." And all the interviews with the students there, we feel happy, we feel safe, we feel secure. You know, these guys are just making dad jokes all this all the time. They're embarrassing us, but we love them. I would rather send my son Ben, when he's old enough, I would rather send him to a place like that, a predominantly black high school, probably not funded a whole heck of a lot with dads like that than pick your, pick your name, pick, pick your suburban school district anywhere. I would rather send him to a school like that where there are parents like that who are hopefully, you know, maybe not all, maybe not every single one, but at least there's a remnant of, uh, of people there who actually care because we have a whole lot, a whole lot more in common. Those of us who are white evangelicals, we have a lot more in common with them than we do most of our suburban neighbors. And it's a great tragedy, but it's not a bug. It's a feature of the game plan that the enemy has used on race in America that that divide has has been what it is. Because doesn't it seem like that's the very community alliance that would probably undo a lot of this? Correct. So that not that the oldest strategy in the world, divide and conquer? Yep. Yeah. 
What do you think, Todd? Well, Jason, right out of the gate, was talking about uh, the social media and the performance art uh, aspect of mm-hmm. everything, uh, the sensationalism. Well, it got me thinking about going all the way back to the twentieth, uh, beginning of the 20th century, and you had a difference of opinion from two greatest black leaders of the time, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And Booker T. Washington believed in a bottom-up, the everyday experience. Just give us access to a job, a, a, a house, a neighbor. Not, not give it to us, but just the regular things of life and the shared experience that we all have. And that's how we come together. W.B. Du Bois believed a more top-down experience. Uh, that we needed access at the at the highest levels because that's the change makers. Well, I think once again we are proving, in my estimation, that Booker T. Washington had the accurate way of things uh, because the sensationalism, the acting that goes on in today's uh, elites, experts, it it is nothing but acting. They are sitting there on the same stages on news programs. It's more diverse than ever black next to white but they're simultaneously trying to tell you about why we need critical race theory because of all the inherent imbalances of power and they're all nodding their heads in agreement yet one of them is supposed to be the white devil and the other one is supposed to be irrevocably a victim it's insane it's nothing but performance art and when he's talking about the commonality of our faiths that's obviously when we talk about the ten commandments and the hierarchy of truth that's on top, but all the other common experiences of regular life that used to bring us together, increasingly so, right up until that time you mentioned with Barack Obama, where you think, maybe we're finally here. Mm-hmm. We have enough of these shared experiences. It's not perfect, but I, I don't see anything other than just another person trying to make their way in the world. There's highs, there's lows, there's everything else. And I think we genuinely were close enough with all that and that's why the spirit of the age had to kick it into high gear because they knew now we got to go all in because otherwise this thing is going to slip away from us you know trying to buy or sell a home is a stressful time in even regular times prosperous times let alone in unprecedented times ding thank you such as this Was that a substitute ding? I believe that it was. All right. That's why you need to make sure you get a real estate agent that you can trust. Oh, that's easier said than done, Steve. Where would I look? Well, the name kind of says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Now, you might be thinking, well, how do I know I can trust that? Well, if you're a Blaze TV watcher, viewer, uh, podcast listener, chances are you trust our patriarch around here, Glenn Beck, right? Well, good, because this company is his. It was his idea. Tired of real estate agents that talked a good game but then didn't deliver when needed the most? They didn't want that to happen to you. That's why they started the company that has the website with the name that says it all. Head over there now before you get involved in the market. Make sure you've got an agent you can trust, and you're going to find them at realestateagentsitrust.com. That's very well said by both of you. I mean, I think you guys both absolutely stuck the landing there. So I'm going to let it. I'm going to let it stand there. That's very well said. I hope you enjoyed these evergreen editions of the program. Back to live programming before you know it. But hopefully you enjoyed these original evergreens at the exact same time. Uh, Don't forget to let us know what you think about what we think. And subscribe here at blazetv.com slash dace. Until the next time, John 317. The truth. Straight. 
No Chaser, Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.